New Testament reading is from Mark 11, verses 12 to 25. You can find it on page 494 in the Papal Bible. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd were astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but leaves what, believes that what he says will come, come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive your, you your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, this is, a, this is kind of a tough passage to preach on. Um, in fact, the worst sermon I've ever heard was preached on this passage. Um, <laughs> it wasn't at one of our churches, so it was a while back. Um, but the title of the sermon was called, I Stand with the Fig. And the basic theme of the sermon was, man, Jesus seems super mean in this passage. And I don't like this. And the Jesus I know would never do this. And I really care about the environment. And therefore, I stand with the fig tree. And uh, here's the thing. <laughs> Look, regardless of what we figure out this passage means today, I think even just the, the lightest reading of it can tell you the one place you don't want to be standing here is with the fig tree, right? <laughs> the fig tree gets destroyed. But what's going on? What is happening in this passage, right? Is, is Jesus, is he just hangry, right? He, he, the, there's no food on the tree, and he curses the tree, and then he goes down to the temple, and he throws a temper tantrum. Well, obviously not, right? If Jesus can, if he can make it 40 days in the wilderness with no food, I'm sure he can miss a snack every now and then. Um, but what is going on? What is this passage about? This passage is a lesson. The whole thing. It's, it's one big picture that Jesus is trying to get across to us. It is a picture of how true faith working in us will transform our lives. But to get to that picture, to understand how this is a picture of true faith working in our lives that will transform us. We need to kind of decipher the whole story. So what I want us to do is, is ask three questions. First, I want us to ask, what does this curse teach us about faith? What does Jesus cursing the fig tree teach us about faith? Then secondly, I want to ask, what distinguishes true faith from empty religion? What distinguishes 
true faith from empty religion. And then finally, I want us to ask a very basic question. How does this story end? Okay, so that's where we're headed. How does this picture, how does this crazy story teach us about faith in Jesus? Well, if you remember last week, Jesus just has told the disciples that they are heading to Jerusalem. Do you remember that? He mentions Jerusalem and all of the sudden the disciples start to have these ideas about greatness. And Jesus rebukes them. He says, no, I'm telling you that whoever would be great among you will be your servant. This is Mark chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them. Uh, We're going to be looking at them today. And if you don't have a Bible, take one of these Bibles with you. It's our gift to you. We want everybody to have a a copy of God's word. Um, But he says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave to all. So he, he challenges their ideas about what's going to happen in Jerusalem. And now here, in Mark chapter 11, they get to Jerusalem. So they finally arrive. And the part we didn't read, the beginning of this chapter, is called the triumphal entry. And maybe you've heard about this story. Jesus, when he comes into Jerusalem, people are stoked. They're excited. The Messiah has finally arrived. And so they're, they're shouting and they're, they're celebrating. They're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're throwing their coats down. They're, they're throwing palm branches down. They give him a king's welcome. Now, what you might know, not know about this is historically, there was a tradition that whenever royalty would enter into a new city, the, the king would come and go directly to the main temple and offer a sacrifice there. And Jesus seems to be kind of playing right into everyone's expectations. He rides into town and he immediately goes into the temple. But verse 11, it tells us, he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. So basically he he walks in the temple, looks around, And then he goes home. Instead of making a sacrifice, he leaves. And that would be a weird story if that was the whole story. But Mark is telling us a story that spans three days here in chapter 11. So he looks around and he goes home. And that's the end of day one. Day two, they wake up in Bethany. And the first thing they do is head home. Or head back to the temple. So they start walking to the temple. And on their way, they run into this fig tree. And this weird story takes place, right? It tells us first that Jesus is hungry. And he sees a tree off in the distance, and it's a leafy tree. It's a green tree. It looks like the kind of tree that might have fruit on it, but it doesn't because it's not time for figs yet. It's it's near Passover. It's actually still probably several weeks away from when a fig would normally grow. And so he gets there, and there is no fruit on the tree. And so Jesus, when he checks all the leaves out, when he finds there's nothing on it, verse 14, it says, he speaks to this tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples hear it, and that's it. Nothing else happens to the tree at that moment. They just move on. They keep walking down into the temple. And let me give you an idea of what they're seeing now as they're walking down this hill towards the temple. The temple... It was near Passover, and and historians tell us that maybe something like two million people would be coming into Jerusalem during this period of time to worship at the temple, to make sacrifices there. And some of them were coming from really long distances away. So imagine if you're going on this incredibly long journey. It's probably difficult to take 
a lamb with you to sacrifice or, or a pigeon with you to sacrifice. So to meet that need, different vendors have set up their little shops outside of the temple to, to sell those goods to people. And so as Jesus and the disciples are looking down, they're seeing this, this huge scene, right, from a long way away, thousands of people, lots of animals, all this commotion. We don't really have anything to compare it to, right? We don't have a, a temple here in Boston. But it just I'm trying to get the idea of what the scene would have been like. Just imagine, like, if the Topsfield Fair or something was down in front of the Boston Public Library, right? You got the, like, beautiful architecture. You have all these people pushing. You have the smell of, like, livestock, the, the bleeding of, of sheep and, and pigeons cooing, merchants trying to sell everything. It's a pretty lively scene. Maybe a little hectic. But overall, kind of a good sign, an energetic scene. Lots of people are here to worship. But then, when the disciples get to the temple, when Jesus gets inside, he is not excited about the energy there. He is not rejoicing in any way. No, it tells us that he is furious, right? He's angry. He flips over, temple, he flips over the tables. He, he kicks over chairs. It tells us that people had been using the outer uh, courtyard of the temple as a cut through to get to other places, carrying vessels through there. And Jesus is blocking them. He's not even letting them get into the courtyard to pass through. He's making this huge scene. Now, think about it. The king, again, has just rode into town. He has, again, just entered into the temple. But again, he's not making a sacrifice. He's not doing the thing people expected. Instead, he makes this pronouncement. He says, verse 17, Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. Now Mark has set this up so that we can see a parallel here. Do you see it? Do you notice the, the way this story is going? On one hand, you have this tree. This tree that looked like it was going to be blooming, but when, it, when you got closer, you realized there is no fruit at all. Right? On the other hand, you have this temple. This temple with all this sign of life surrounding it. But when you get inside, you realize it's not serving its purpose. There is no fruit there. And this verse that Jesus quotes when he says, it is written... It comes right from Isaiah. It's actually the, one of the, like, the most direct quotations you'll ever find of the Old Testament in the New Testament. And it is showing us exactly why Jesus is so mad. He says, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. So he's not just mad that people are selling things. That was a pretty necessary part of it. It was helpful to have sheep and pigeons for sale but what he was mad about was where they were doing it. Instead of just keeping all that stuff outside of the temple, the merchants had moved their things into the temple, into this outer courtyard called the Court of the Gentiles. Now, if you can imagine it, it would be like if the temple's you know, a little bigger than the size of this room, there's like a giant courtyard surrounding it where anybody is allowed to go. But this is the only place that the Gentiles are allowed to go in the temple. That outer courtyard was designated to be the place where, where Gentiles could come. And instead, 
of making that a worshipful spot for them, the leadership of the temple had allowed merchants to fill it up. Animals were in there. Instead of making it a solemn place, it had become a marketplace. It had become a shortcut. People were just walking through it. So when Jesus speaks here, when he gets angry, when he makes this big show, he is condemning them because their religion is empty and fruitless. It's just like the tree. It was a faith that was going through the motions. It looked leafy and green on the outside, but at the core, there's nothing there. These different people, they were coming, they were fulfilling rituals. They were making the sacrifices. But they had forgotten, Israel had forgotten that their purpose was to be a light to the world. It was to attract the nations by their worship of the living God. So setting up these vendors in the court of the Gentiles, it was more than just, oh, this is convenient for us. It was not just a, a, an act of convenience. But Jesus sees this as an act of injustice. Jesus sees this as sin against God and the people have no problem with it. And so that's what he's doing. He's pronouncing the Lord's judgment on them. And then they go home. And that's day two. They go back to Bethany. And then the next morning, day three, in the morning, they wake up and they look back towards the temple and it says they find that fig tree and they're shocked. The disciples see that it has withered away to the roots. Now think about it. That's pretty vivid language. The tree is not just like... It's totally dead. It's completely destroyed. And there's no longer any like, of that leafy stuff going on. There's no longer any of that illusion of life. And that's the picture. Kind of like an Old Testament prophet here. Jesus has turned this tree into a symbol for what he just did. So they're looking down at the temple. They're seeing all this bustling life, but the image is completely clear. He's saying that religion, for its own sake is dead. A religious life that looks good on the outside but produces no fruit is as doomed as that fig tree they were standing right next to. So you get the picture? That's what Jesus is teaching us here about faith. But then the question is, well, how do you know the difference? How can you tell the difference between a, a true faith and an empty lifeless religion. I've been reading lately this biography of Jonathan Edwards. I don't know if you know him. He was a, a Puritan preacher back in the 1700s. And it's a lot of history involved in this book. And uh, the author is talking about one of the main arguments that pastors back then had was how you could tell if somebody was really a Christian or not. They made a lot of, they had a lot of concern with discerning a true conversion. And some of these pastors, they had these long lists. Well, this is how you'll know someone's really a Christian. They got to go through these three stages, these couple of steps. Then they got to go back to feeling sorry again. And then they got, and there's this, the, all these hoops that they have to jump through before a pastor could be absolutely convinced. But interestingly enough, there was no one list. No one could agree on what the exact right set of criteria would be for a conversion. Everybody had some different ideas because, well, sometimes it's hard to tell. 
right? That's what the fig tree is all about. It's saying that you can look really good on the outside. You can fool everybody around you and still be dead on the inside. And that's why this is such a convicting passage, I think. Because Jesus is trying to say that our main issue is not about our behavior. Our main issue is not about how we look to other people on the outside, but it's about what's going on in our hearts. You know, that's what sets Christianity apart from every other religion. That's what sets Christianity apart from every other worldview that you'll find. Do you know that? Every other faith, every other religion says, here is what you need to do to be accepted by God. Keep these rules and God will love you. Do this and you'll be accepted. Or maybe it says, meditate this way. These certain times of the day and you'll achieve enlightenment. Here's what you have to do to break through to the next level. Or maybe, just in the secular worldview, it says, believe these beliefs. Live this way and you'll be accepted by your peers. Live this way and you will have success in the world. Every other way of living says that you become righteous by what you do. But Christianity says only Christ is righteous. Christianity says our salvation is not just about keeping some set of rules, but it is about trusting in what Christ has done. It's about accepting his sacrifice and letting his Holy Spirit transform us. Not working from the outside in, but, but Christianity works from the inside out. And so that's the message Jesus is trying to get across. And the last few verses here, when the disciples, when they find this dead tree, you kind of expect Jesus to spell it out, don't you? It's a pretty crazy event. You'd expect him to say, now guys, okay, let me break this down for you. Here's what I was trying to point out with the tree. But he doesn't. He just keeps teaching. Instead, he starts to talk about what a true faith looks like. And he says three things. He says, first... That the difference between real faith and an empty religion is faithful prayer. Look at verse 22. He says, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the heart of the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have re received it, and it will be yours. So Jesus first says one of the, the distinctives of a true faith is that faithful people pray faithful prayers. You know, that, that sounds kind of weird to say it that way, but it's true. Faithful people, they pray faithful prayers. Now, this verse, there's lots of confusion around it. Lots of people try to explain it in all sorts of different ways. I feel like this week I've read every one of them. <laughs> I, I spent a lot of time wading through some scholarship for you all this week. I hope that this can clear it up a bit. But one thing people say is, well, Jesus is standing on this mountain and they're looking at the temple mount. So when he says that you can move mountains, what he's really saying is, if you pray faithfully, he will over, God's going to overthrow the temple. Um, that's, cl that's clever, you know, there's certainly some truth into the fact that God's overthrown the temple, but I don't think that's what Jesus was saying. Other people say, well, 
you, he's really serious about this mountain. And he's talking about the Mount of Olives. And the prayer is that, that when you pray, God will throw the Mount of Olives into the sea, which is, you find in the Psalms, like he throws the mountains into the heart of the sea. It's a, a saying about God's coming back and setting things straight. So it's, it's if you're praying faithful prayers, God's going to come and he's going to restore all things. Which again, a true statement, but I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I think Jesus is saying what we think he's saying. I think he's saying that God can do impossible stuff, like throw mountains into the ocean. He's saying that, that if God can do impossible things through prayer. I don't, it's, it shouldn't be surprising to us that Jesus says stuff like that. He literally just said that one chapter before this. Do you remember when he was talking about the camel going through the eye of the needle? And he said, with God, with, with man, it's impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. Jesus is trying to say that, that faithful people pray with faith that God can do impossible things. Now, we've got to be careful there, though. I, I don't want to lead you astray. Don't be, don't be dumb enough to build your entire theology off this verse, okay? Don't build your entire philosophy of prayer on this one verse, right? It is not saying, for instance, God will give you whatever you ask for as long as you believe the right way. Or on the other hand, it's not saying the reason your prayers are going unanswered is because you need to tweak something about your faith. You need to twist it a little bit and then it's going to come true next time. You know, I have a friend who has a, a debilitating illness and some, I suppose, well-meaning Christian came to him and said, you know, you know, if you just have faith, God can heal you of this disease. Right? What a jerk. Like, who would say that? <laughs> but he did. I, I, and I, I'm sure that this guy was sincere. But thankfully, my friend has really good theology. And he said, why do I have to have faith? If you have faith, God can heal me. <laughs> <laughs> He's right. If that's what Jesus is saying, that's all it takes. It's, it's somebody's faith that's deficient, but it's not necessarily yours. <laughs> but that's not what God's saying, right? What, what Jesus is saying is that God is living. God hears your prayers and he answers them. Now, sometimes he says no. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, prayed a very faithful prayer. Let this cup pass from me, but not as I will, as you will. And God said, no, I can't, I can't let this cup pass from you. One of the signs of spiritual life in you is vibrant and faithful prayer. Empty religion is void of relationship, you know? But God's people are living in a constant dialogue with him. They're talking to him. They're, they're asking him to act on their behalf. That's the first thing. Secondly, true faith is humble where empty religion is self-righteous. At the core of our faith, people who know Jesus know that they are sinners saved by grace. Amen? Religion is about what you have done. It's about keeping the rules. It's about being good enough. It's about what you have earned on your own. 
It's the story of the elder brother. Do you remember that? The, the story of the prodigal son who goes and he lives this wayward life and he comes back and the father receives him with open arms and has a big party to celebrate. But then that elder brother, he's still outside. Do you remember that part? And the father goes out to him in the field and he says, I've done everything you've ever asked. I'm the one who deserves the party. Religion says, I have kept all the rules. I'm, I'm better than most people. And therefore, God owes it to me to accept me. Therefore, God owes it to me to let me be with him. But that kind of religion is not faith. That is not Christianity. In fact, that is just as, as wayward as any other sin you can think of. It is a way to say, I don't need Jesus. I don't need a Savior. I can do this on my own. And so our ability to forgive people, our willingness to forgive, it says, verse 25, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Our ability to forgive is a good indicator of whether we know Jesus. If you think that you've done it all on your own, then of course you have every right to withhold forgiveness from somebody else. You have every right to be angry with somebody who couldn't pull it together like you pulled it together. But if you have seen your true hopelessness, if the Holy Spirit has shown you the depravity of your soul, if the Spirit has revealed that you could not possibly stand in the presence of God on your own, if you can say with Paul that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I'm the worst, then you're going to be forgiven. It's going to produce forgiveness in your own life. So, True faith, it's prayerful, it's, it's forgiving. And thirdly, the third distinction here is actually not from this verse, but it's from right before in the temple. True faith is missional, whereas religion is tribal. True faith is focused on the world. It's focused on sharing the good news, while religious people are focused on themselves. Focused on their group. It's easy for us to read a story like this and think about a temple that existed a long time ago that probably none of us have ever even seen the ruins of. And to think this was a problem for them back then, over there, that those people did. But the church's a lot more like those religious leaders than we probably recognize. And I, it shows the most in how little we concern ourselves with the world around us. I doubt that any of these religious leaders, when Jesus was in the temple that day, when he was upset with them, I'm sure if he were to, to speak to the leaders, I, they probably wouldn't say, oh, no, Gentiles aren't welcome in the courtyard. They wouldn't say that. No, they'd say, yes, of course, this is the court of the Gentiles. They're certainly welcome here. We just put the animals here because it's easier for us. They're welcome to fit themselves in around the animals. <laughs> There's nothing prohibiting them from entering. We just have done a few things to make it easier on the rest of the people coming here for worship. 
You see, their, their comfort, that was their top priority. And I think we do that too. I think in the church, we make all kinds of decisions that are about our convenience, that are about our comfort. And then we ask outsiders. We ask people from different cultures and races and backgrounds to come in and, and work around where we've put things. We ask them to find the space rather than making room. Right? It's not that we don't want to reach our neighbors. Of course we want to reach them. It's just we don't want to inconvenience ourselves too much as we do it. The problem with our, our church, and, and maybe the evangelical church in particular, maybe our denomination in particular, is we don't know how to prioritize the unwashed Gentiles. We don't know how to prioritize those people who aren't from our same space, who aren't from our culture or our class, who don't share our interests. But you know who did prioritize them? Jesus. Jesus. He showed his priority when he walked into this temple and he was furious. And I wonder, what would Jesus do if he walked into our church today? What are the traditions that he would look around this room that would make him angry? What tables would he flip in your lives? I wonder, where have we traded kingdom values for our own comfort? Empty religion, that dead, lifeless fig tree is prayerless, it's self-righteous, it's tribal. But a fruitful life of faith a life that has encountered Christ is a life that is dependent, that dialogues with him, that prays for him, that believes faithful things from him, that is humble and is missional, that makes itself uncomfortable to welcome others in. So how does this story end? This moment in the temple is is not really the end of the story, you know. It's an incomplete story. Did you, do you see how it's incomplete? Mark's setting the parallels up. I said that already, right? First, Jesus, they, they pass the fig tree. Jesus pronounces death and destruction on the fig tree when he finds it fruitless. Then he sees the temple. And Jesus pronounces destruction on the fig tree when he finds, on, the, on the temple when he finds it fruitless. Then they come back. And the tree is dead and destroyed. But what about the temple? What happens then? You know, I imagine after Jesus left, those merchants probably were like, what was that? That was weird. <laughs> you know, pick up their tables, brush them off, put their chairs back. Next day, I'm sure things were just like normal. He made the pronouncement that day, but the judgment had not yet come. And see, folks, here is where the gospel comes in, right? You see, it would have been his right to bring judgment that day. It would have been the Messiah's right to march into town and to come into the temple and to declare that this is my house. He could have shown his authority, he could have shown his power, and he could have poured out the wrath of God on those people the same way he did it to that tree. 
And folks, if he did that, he wouldn't have just left them destroyed. He would have left all of us destroyed as well. But instead, instead of marching in there and wiping out those false worshipers, the text tells us that that he let those false worshipers wipe him out. Did you read that in verse 18? The chief priests and the scribes, when they saw what Jesus did, they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. At this moment, they started to prepare the cross for him. And as we're going to read in the next few weeks, on that cross, instead of punishing us for our sins, he took the punishment on himself. He completed that sign, right? I told you that guy's sermon, I stand with the fig. Jesus is the one who stood with the fig. Jesus is the one who allowed himself to be struck down. The source of life, the the source of all fruitfulness, the eternal son of God in the flesh allowed himself to be withered to the root for you. The good news for us today is that. That all of us who would repent right now, who would stop trying to do things on our own, stop trying to look good on the outside, but instead come to Him to surrender our own efforts and instead trust in His efforts. For anyone who would do that, it says we get His Spirit. And not only do we get His Spirit, we get His record to count for ours forever. We don't have to examine our leaves to see if there's enough of fruit on them. We don't have to worry that God's going to come and find us barren because he has found Christ's fruitfulness on your tree. And when that happens, when the Spirit starts to work in you, that's where it comes from. That's where faith comes from. That's where your ability to forgive will come from. That's where the missional impulse in your heart will come from. God working in you from the inside out. But it would be unfair for me to look at this and and not remind you that there are two options here. We can also refuse that offer. We can also hear that message of the gospel and say, I think I'll do it on my own. This winter, the question that we're asking is, what did Jesus come to do? At least part of that answer is that he came to bring judgment. As surely as that fig tree withered to the root, one day he's going to come and he's going to complete the story. He's going to wrap it all up. And on that day, he will end false and fruitless religion forever. So I want to challenge you this morning. Don't let this moment pass you by. Take this time and look at your heart. Ask yourself, are you truly resting in the work of Christ? Are you being transformed by the power of the Spirit? Are you seeing His fruit in your life? Or are you like that temple? Bustling, busy, but spiritually dead. I want to invite you, wherever you are this morning, 
to see that this table offers grace for you. To see that this table offers life for you right now, for anyone who would come to him and say, I need Jesus. I want to invite you to come with me and join me at this table.